Welcome to Paradigmatic Silences. I'm your host, Michael Essien. If you like the content shared on Paradigmatic Silences, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you've missed any of the previous episodes, feel free to explore Paradigmatic Silences archives. Today's episode is the concluding conversation with Victor Tam, principal of Edwin and Anita Lee Newcomer School in San Francisco Unified. So let's get into the concluding conversation with Principal Victor Tam. Yeah, but I also think that like you hit on a point, like sometimes I think, um, and, and I thank you for the qualifier because I don't want any other district school to begin to think that, oh, I'm talking about them. But sometimes uh, adults, we get in the way because yes. we're, we're thinking about ourselves and not students and thinking about trying to find, it's not about your school, it's about finding the right environment that's going to be a safe social emotional learning space for students. And I think like sometimes that is lost on us because um, when I say us, I'm talking about adults because we get into adult yes. things as opposed to student things. And so you, you bring up you bring up a lot of issues within uh, the, just the Chinese language and, and thinking about newcomer, like the fact that it, it doesn't have any similarities, limited similarities with uh, the English language. So if you uh, were the czar of all of education. So given the current state of the newcomer education uh, learning process, what message would you give to parents? What would you be Uh. able to change and (laughs) and, and communicate to parents? I guess, let me, let me, hold on. That was kind of sloppy. Let me separate that. Um, Before we talk about parents, if you were the czar, what would you change uh, what would I change schools. for newcomer schools? I would that. change the the transition between our school and the next school so that we would have more Mandarin bilingual programs available to students and families. Um, right now, the only option in our district is... is um, Man is Cantonese immersion or Mandarin immersion, but in in Cantonese bilingual. But I would want to be able to um, offer Mandarin bilingual program as well. Okay. Yeah. So with you a would, snap you would of a finger, I would. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> all the resources and the training and the teachers. In the, in the space, it would just even materialize. And, honestly, I, and I can see it, man. I can see it happening, right? And piloted um, the program at one of our schools. We, we just start with one. And we say, we're going we're gonna to dedicate this school to be a, a Mandarin bilingual program. And we start from one. Because I know, again, I recognize and appreciate that we have budget limitations and resource limitations. But until we start, it's like, you know, it's like with anything, until we take that first step, it's never gonna happen. And even if we were just to start with one school as a test, as a trial, and we build out this program and see what happens. Because the other part of it is that as much as I embrace and love Cantonese, that's my home language. 
the world has transitioned to Mandarin. You know, all of China is speaking Mandarin because they mandate it. In Taiwan, they speak Mandarin. It's just Hong Kong and San Francisco that are more Cantonese dominant. Well, I, it sounds like you might be traveling down and, a, a you know, can like of I political can, worms. I can almost <laughs> feel the backlash because I feel it from from even my wife, who, when she, my wife actually started a um, a new Chinese immersion program in our district, and at the time, she, okay, she along with um, you know. It, she couldn't make the final decision, but she could have steered it one way or another. And she steered it towards Cantonese because she too had this, has this mindset that Cantonese is what is more important for the people of San Francisco. And so that was the thinking. And I remember having that conversation with her and it was very passionate, you know, passionate or painful, (laughs) but, um, the conversation was that, you know, I really think that we should consider having a uh, Mandarin immersion program. And she disagreed. And even, even today, like I, we avoid a lot of subjects because oftentimes our conversations around work end up in arguments uh, because we come from very different perspectives. But even now, I would think that I'm pretty sure she would still stand by Cantonese. And for me, what I see is that we need to have Mandarin, especially for the newcomer kids coming in. It's not fair for them that after our one year, they transition into, here are their choices. They can go to English only, where it's, again, in a lot of ways, sink or swim, because there's there's fewer scaffolds available. Cantonese, bilingual, same thing, um, and either Mandarin emerging, which is not particularly designed for newcomer students, or Cantonese emerging. And a lot of our families end up choosing Cantonese bilingual. And the reason why is because they say, at least I know I'll be able to communicate with the teacher. Because a lot of our adults coming in, they may be Mandarin speakers, but they may understand Cantonese. Yeah, this is... Like, I I tell you, like, once again, like, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, adults... And adults thinking about adult things, making adult decisions that are in the best interest of adults. Um, I, I, I just, I just know the politics of this uh, are deep and heavy. <laughs> and so, I, I, th- I think you and your wife are smart. Uh, you guys don't talk about that at home. <laughs> Michael <laughs> said, Zena, "I'm not taking a side. Said, I'm not I'm taking right. anybody's side. Just let her know." <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about these things right and so uh, like you definitely have an opinion you definitely have a position 
and it's connected to like like a global thing that's actually happening, like all of China, and then what that means for people who do business with China. Um, so, given that, like, then what would be your um, message to parents? My, what would you communicate our to parents? School message and my message for our families is: you have to be involved. You have to take an active role in your kid's education. In China, it's not so. It's not the same case. In China, what I hear is that the school shuts its gate and the parents are left outside. But here in the United States, they have to be an active voice. They have to advocate for their kids, and they have to know what's going on. Transition, transitioning. As an immigrant kid into a different school system is super hard. It's hard academically. It's hard linguistically. It's hard social emotionally. I think the biggest of the biggest challenge is when our kids start to lose self confidence. Because they see themselves as less than they are, because they don't speak the language here in the dominant schools, and they start to look at themselves and see themselves as less than, or sometimes when they see themselves as dumb, that they they're not as smart. And once that happens, we know、yeah. whether it's、uh, like. Yeah, you know, I connect this with my daughter, and when she was playing basketball, the team—we had a scrappy team—and when they would walk in the gym, sometimes you see the other team, and they're tall, and they're they're you know, and and our kids on these little Asian leagues, they was <laughs> they would see it, and you could see it in their eyes that they did not have that confidence, and just like in sports, when you don't have that confidence, you've lost a lot of it. You know, you've lost that edge. Yes, it impacts possibilities. Yeah. Yes, it can lessen possibilities. Yeah. yeah, when a learner、Absolutely. comes in and they feel that they have a voice and they have something to say and they they have something to put into the conversation and add to the conversation, they're strong. But if they come in and they feel like they're not understood. Other people laugh at them when they speak. They don't know as much. They're already working from a, a far lower rung on that ladder. And unless we have a teacher who's really skilled and、yeah. adept at at seeing that and in addressing it, that kid will lose more and more. And that's scary to me. I think, I think,、um, for me, like, I think、um, the bilingual programs are really important because it involve it allows the students access not just in language, but to all the curriculum. You know. So, so a learner 
has the ability, the opportunity to work on their, their languages, English and their primary language. And it's like what the Native Americans used to say, you know, don't lose your language because your language is your culture. And we want our kids to, to embrace that culture. Yeah. And I'm speaking from my own firsthand experience. Growing up in Rhode Island, I was whitewashed. I lost my culture. It wasn't until I went into college, my, my third year of college, that I took my first Asian American studies class and the whole world opened up for me. And I started to see, wow, I'm not alone. And there's a whole world of people out there that are just like me, who have contributed so much to, to society and to history. And, and it's, it's who I am. But before that class, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to whitewash myself into a white person. So the sooner we can do that, the earlier that we can for our cross-cultural kids to help them see and accept and love who they are as they are, the stronger and better and more positioned they are to learn and to succeed within our system of education. Amen, bro. I'm totally for that. And so the entire time that you've been sharing uh, the story, I, I think more than anything, the role that we are as educators, the role that we play as educators for the teacher or administrator is cultivating a strong internal dialogue for these students, right? Because when a student starts to think about that they're not good, that they suck, that they're terrible, that woe is me, it becomes so challenging to counter the narrative that they have internally, right? It becomes a serious, serious struggle. Um, And then we need to, we really do need to nurture that internal dialogue, which means like that's how we respond, how we do things. And so the story that you shared about that young lady who spent an entire fall semester not learning, right? Like what was her internal dialogue doing then? You know how many days, like you start thinking about the months that were passing by, right? And it's just, I don't know. I just think that we need to really do consider children and as as, yes. as gentle things that need to be nurtured because the slightest yes. thing could send them on a trajectory that's, that's not beneficial. And so, so with that, man, I, I do want to say, man, I, I appreciate the work that you do. Uh, and I know you're going to continue <laughs> to advocate, but I know also that your wife is advocating. So it doesn't make a difference on what side of the, the continuum you guys are on. You're advocating for the... Uh, Chinese students and the Chinese families that are coming into the school district or into the city that, that need this education. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, you are somebody that I admire. Uh, I do want to um, 
I just want to ask a couple of questions like that are that are like follow up to this because I, they're just sticking in my mind. And then uh, we're going to transition to the paradigmatic science question so we can uh, wrap this up. The, the questions that I pose to everyone. So Mike, a, a, a question for you, um, thinking about the importance of your school site, like why aren't why aren't students allowed to stay more than one year? If I think about cultivating that internal dialogue, why not like say a two year process before releasing them? Uh, into right. the choices that you uh, I think um, there uh, were shared program earlier. decisions that were made before I was there. Um, just to clarify, if a student comes in, let's say, and you know, our students are coming in all year long. So before COVID, if a student were to enter the school after January or, or in January or after, they had the option to stay at our school for another year um, if they chose to, if they were, so long as they okay. were in kindergarten to fourth grade. So we wouldn't be able to keep a fifth grader after, after that, um, that period of time when they came in. Um, but you're right, like more time would help students because it just gives them more time to address these foundational uh, foundational skill sets that they so desperately need. Um, but it's a program change. It would be a program change. Okay. Right, I'll pick you up. Just, I'm just, just a, a thought that ran across my mind. And also, uh, when, when students leave your school, um, do you track students after they leave in terms of success, how kids are doing, like in various programs? Because said there are very op various options that they have. Like, do you guys monitor that? I mean, not that you specifically have a Excel uh, spreadsheet, but in multilingual are. pathways, I, are they that checking that out? Aware of, um, but what we do have are students who just come back and visit, and there are so many stories of kids who. Um, have made it, you know, academically through the system. And so often they'll credit our program because it just made that first year that much easier. I think, um, I think when new immigrant kids come to the United States and come into San Francisco Unified, especially the, the Chinese. And so I'm going to talk about the Chinese culture from the way my parents would have done it and the way a lot of traditional Chinese parents would do it. Um, you talk about paradigmatic silence, <laughs> right? Um, Chinese families are notorious for that. So, <laughs> so, you know, like here in my family, if we were to shoot, man, we sit down around the table and I ask the kids, oh, what would you like for dinner? <laughs> right? I ask them, what do you want for dinner? In my family growing up, we got what we got and we were happy with what we got. <laughs> and, and, even if we didn't know, did not like it, you do not say anything because <laughs> you would just go without. <laughs> and, and I think that um, 
in in my family, if we were considering moving across the street, it would be a conversation with the kids saying, you know, this is what mom and dad are thinking of doing. What do you think? How do you feel? What are your worries? What are your hopes? You know, for a lot of Chinese traditional families like my mom and dad's, they may not have had the culturally, they may not have seen it as important. But capacity wise, they may not even have had the capacity to even think about it and address it like that. And so they probably were told, we're leaving. We're going to be moving, you know, pack your stuff. You can only bring this much. And, you know, that's, um, this is how it is. And as a kid, you probably wouldn't want to leave your, your friends, your family. And yet they don't have a voice in it. Yeah. You know, they don't get to have a voice in it. They don't get to have a say. And so, um, I think that I think that a lot of our our kids feel like their voices don't matter. You know, and and the families reinforce that. But what's nice is like what Maya Angelou says, you know, has said before, um, you know better, you do better, right? We know better in terms of parenting, education. Um, and how to raise kids with more confidence and self-confidence. And I think that that's important. And I also want to add in that we don't want kids just to feel a sense of confidence. We also want to give them the skill sets to, to base that confidence on something solid. So that's where those foundational skills are so, so important. We want our kids to, to be able to, um, to feel self-confident based on what they're learning so that they have these stepping stones that will give them a solid foundation as they move on out of our school. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, apparently you you answered the first question, uh, paradigmatic silences. So um, I was going to have you ever experienced it, but you said about that is the <laughs> lived experience for Chinese Chinese families. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I can share some of that. I can share some of that experiences from uh, being in a Southern Baptist Black family. Uh, the paradigmatic science is real. Um, so that. let me ask you this question. I want to add that on. Uh, absolutely. It's your time. Even professionally, we face paradigmatic silence. And you mentioned this in your blog. The, the connection between central office and central office providers of professional development and site administrators, you mentioned all that. And I think it, it, um, it is something that's very real because um, we as site administrators see it and feel it. 
And sometimes I think the, the hard part as a site administrator in a big district is that sometimes it seems like there's certain um, type of leadership style that is valued. And yet, um, and yet not all of us share in that same kind of leadership style. Does this make sense so far? Okay. So, so um, I bring it back to like teaching. It makes part, yes. If yes, we it believe does. that kids thrive using different teaching styles, and that's why, that's why classroom teachers, we want classroom teachers to be able to differentiate and have a broad, um, broad um, um, toolkit of strategies to use on helping students and learners. I think in leadership, we have to be able to believe that that different people will thrive under different leadership styles. And so we should embrace more than a small, tight um, style of leadership. So I think that um, I think that it would help if we were able to broaden our our um, acceptance and embrace broader types of leadership styles. So, uh, but then also, to me, that translates into, like, we really do embrace diversity. The diversity is not just ethnicity. Um, it's not just gender. The, like, diversity is also personality, leadership styles, interests. Um, because I, I do believe the more, the merrier. Because it, the the idea of collective genius uh, it's it's rooted in different styles, it's rooted in different beliefs. I think this is how we get innovation and this is how we move forward. And this is how um, that one person that might think completely different can have the one solution that's going to solve everything. But that can absolutely. only happen if we embrace um, diversity, if we embrace yeah, difference. Absolutely. Right? So I'm in total agreement with what you're talking about. Total agreement. So um, these next series of questions is they're going to be more rapid fire, um, not even necessarily rapid fire, but they're just your opinion. Just give me your opinion. Uh, the questions are provocative on purpose uh, and just share your opinion. So the <laughs> All right. first question is, I'm gonna say is school segregation good, good or bad? And it can be bad. And <laughs> this is why it can be good, for example, in how our school our newcomer schools are designed um, for MEC and for the Edwin and Anita Lee newcomer school. Yes, um, our schools are segregated. MEC is Mission Education Center. Carla's school, MEC, is focused on just Spanish speaking newcomers. And in our school, we have just Chinese-speaking newcomers. Why is this good? If we put, if we housed our 
newcomer program, our, our Chinese speaking newcomer program, let's say at a, a larger school, the way it's designed is early on, our enrollment is, tends to be low and we keep those seats open because we know historically newcomers arrive, immigrants arrive all throughout the year and we start out really small. We tend to be start out really small. And by the end of the year, we cap out our, our um, full enrollment is 132 students by the end of the school year. And um, the district is really good about committing the resources for that. I applaud the district for doing that, for, for dedicating those resources for that. If we were to house our program in another school, in a larger school setting, what, ha what might happen? Well, when I was a, a principal at a larger school with different programs, we would allocate funds and reallocate funds throughout the year. And it would be really hard to see a colleague with a handful of kids in the classroom when I have 20 some odd, 30 some odd kids in my class. And there would be a lot of pressure to reallocate funds or time or resources so that, so that, um, so that we we may decide to end up taking funds away from those seats. And so what might happen later on when newcomers come in, we may not have those seats available to them, right? So that's where it does work. But segregation as a, as a way, as a, I don't know, as a um, pedagogy, <laughs> I think is wrong. Because I think, um, I think we need our kids and our teachers and our staffs to work together. And the more diverse, like just like what you had said earlier, the the sense of diversity and em embracing diversity, not just with students, but in practice, in ideals, in thought, to spur innovation and. Yeah. And to really build that that love of each other, that understanding, that that acceptance of each other, that's it comes from day to day living, not from not from just talk. Yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, next question. Can uh, districts make rapid changes to benefit students that have been historically <laughs> underserved? Yes, the district can. Think in terms of your context and I think around uh, newcomers. District can and should when it comes to um, addressing, addressing very egregious wrongs. But I also think that rapid changes are not necessarily the ones that take anchor over the long haul. That change actually takes time and it, you need to help people understand the why and help people shift over in a way where they can accept and embrace that change. 
so that that change is something that's long-term rather than like, oh, we're just going to do it right now. And then who knows what will happen after, after this period of change. Absolutely. Next question. Thinking about uh, hmm. newcomer schools, um, what support do teachers and parents need to improve outcomes? I think outcomes? one support that they need is to understand how much time these kids coming in need. We need to be patient. And these kids need that patience and time in order to learn a new language and to succeed in this educational system. I think a lot of times teachers and families feel that they don't have that time or that patience. And kids feel like, if I can't get it this year, then I'm not going to get it. And I'm dumb. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not good enough. So I think um, a lot of times it just comes down to having parents and teachers and staff understand transitioning as a newcomer takes time and it takes patience. Okay. Next question, and I need to give some uh, background on the, the definition racist in this question. This is not, the word racist in this question that's coming up. It's not racist in terms of individual racist. So it's not about a person who uses pejorative words to demean certain ethnic groups. Um, racist in this context is an institutional and structural racism where you can see a particular system producing predictable outcomes for groups of individuals over a period of time, right? So it's it's more, the question is rooted around structural and institutional racism. Yes. So here's the question. Because can a racist a district become anti-racist? Institutional and systemic, and institutional, I'm sorry, if it's an institutional um, system that needs to be changed, we have the ability to change it. I think um, it just comes down to our commitment and our vision. How willing are we to really roll up our sleeves and look at our systems painfully, honestly? Painfully, honestly, to look at what is working and what is not working and why. I think the the um institutional part is we we have control over this but how willing are we to to really like rip open that wound right because it's gonna hurt and look at it very honestly i mean i can point back just recently just listening in to the Board of Education, entertaining that the, the changes 
on Lowell and it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> because what the practices within our institution oh, absolutely. are intertwined with the community <laughs> and with the families and there's a history and you know, like these changes are necessary, are very necessary, but do we have that that fortitude and that dedication to do it? Yeah. I think coming back to your word, um, integrity, right? Do you have the integrity? Um, yes. Next question. Uh, white parents do white parents do, have a role in improving education? Do. We parents have to see themselves as um, a part of our education system. We want them invested into it. And we want them, if they're invested in it, they have to be part of that improvement cycle. We can't push out any one group of parents. We need everyone at the table in order to have effective and sustainable change. Yeah. Last question. I, although I know you are a Chinese newcomer school principal over there for quite some time. Uh, do you I see do. black and brown voices um, being incorporated like into the, the conversation on education? The um, um, committees that that give voice to our our um, um, education system. Um, one thing that is that was very disturbing was again referencing back to the what happened with Lowell. We had these student delegates, and you know, one one is an African American young woman, and um, her voice was um, was really great. You know, it was very powerful. But um, I think what's painful is sometimes hearing people's responses to certain voices. Yeah. And just for those people who are listening, who might not be part of San Francisco Unify or familiar with some of the things, APAC, A-A-P-A-C stands for the African-American Parent Advisory Committee. And ALI, A-A-A-L-I, stands for the African-American Achievement Leadership Initiative. So um, Principal Victor Tam, Paradigmatic Silences, would like to thank you for spending time sharing your thoughts around education. Uh, you are somebody that uh, not only do I call a colleague, a friend, but you're somebody that inspires me as a leader. And I thank you for sharing your thoughts with us here today. If people want to get in contact with you, um, uh, you got social great. Uh, well, connections, the first thing social I media. Say is uh, I, how can I, they get in contact thank with you? For allowing me or if they want to follow the podcast you. and Michael, as much as many of the high words as you've shared about me, you know, I, I really am grateful for the, the friendship that we've shared for so many years. And you're someone I respect 
and that I admire. And I'm so, I learned so much from you and how you model leadership. And, you know, um, I'm so grateful for, for who you are and what you bring into our district and into our work, not just in your words, but in all the actions that I've seen you do, you know, you're, you're a wonderful leader and we're lucky to have you. Um, so thank you. And then um, <laughs> to connect with me. Oh, yeah, you know, I love you, man. <laughs> thank you for the words. <laughs> love you too, man. Love you too. And don't forget, tell Rosina I didn't take your side. <laughs> um, the best way is probably so Twitter. If, were, if people want to, hashtag, people want to get in contact with you, um, Principal Tam, T A M, like in Monday. All righty. Once again, Principal Tam, you are an amazing person. And I'm glad for whatever reason. Uh, the universal energies Same allow here. us to Thank intersect you, um, and learn to know each other, man. I appreciate it, bro. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Paramedic Sciences saying thank you, Principal Tam. Have a wonderful evening. Paramedic Sciences would like to thank Victor Tam principal of Edwin and Anita Lee Newcomer School for sharing his thoughts as an educational leader. If you would like more information on paradigmatic silences, visit Inside the Mind of a Principal and read my blog on The Opportunity Gap and Paradigmatic Silences. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Michael C. Essien. There are a series of workshops being offered in March, a course on critical race theory, a tool of analysis and race and racism in education continues. The second class in a five-part series will be held on March 9th. Participants will explore the second tenet of critical race theory, the permanence of racism. And on March 13th, a workshop will be offered, part one of Anti-Racist Discipline, You Are the One Students Have Been Waiting For. This workshop explores the use of critical race theory as a framework helping parents and educators innovate for equity. You can visit Essien Education Group to register for these workshops. Paradigmatic Silence is sponsored by Essien Education Group. Until next time, this is Michael Essien saying, may equity and social justice empower us to speak and act.